to positions of hopelessness and helplessness. The government gives them the drugs, builds bigger prisons, passes a three-strike law, and then wants us to sing God Bless America. No, no, no. Okay, uh, what's up, everyone? Hello, welcome to Pod Damn America. Uh, Anders Lee not here. Jake Flores here. Jake J. Flores here. I'm stealing Anders' middle initial. It's not my middle initial. Um, I'm joined today by our pal Jane Peck. Hello. Hello, welcome back to the show. Thank you. It's nice to be here in your L.A. apartment yeah. in person. Yeah. Isn't this cool? Yeah. Us I, I New Yorkers. I to this. We're on the, uh, we're out having a West Coast, I don't know what Arc. we're doing out here, Odyssey of some kind. Sure. Seeing what the other ocean is about. Very relevant to what we're going to talk about today, because uh, we're New Yorkers, you know. Um, so I want to, I want to, I want to start what we're going to do today by explaining like how this happened from my perspective. Okay? Sure. So what was going on for you, Jake? <laughs> Thank you. I love inter- uh, inviting people onto the show to interview me. That's the most fun thing about being a podcaster. But um, it's, I think it's going to help us get to where this is going. So I, I moved out here to the West Coast. I uh, am dating somebody out here. Uh, my birthday is coming up. And Violet, who's been on the show, at one point said to me, um, I'm going to throw you an indie sleaze party for your birthday. And she's good at throwing parties and producing shows and stuff. So I just kind of went like, yeah, because that was one of like a hundred things she was throwing around. And I was like, cool. All right, we'll do that for my birthday. That sounds like a lot of fun. I'll do comedy at it, whatever, right? And then I was kind of thinking about it after a while. And I was like, why did she decide to throw an indie sleaze party for my birthday I'm not that old, you know, <laughs> I'm older than her, but, uh, you know, I wasn't really like in New York for the strokes and stuff. You know, I was in high school when that album came out. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm not really an Andy Sleaze guy. I like the music, but I don't know if it's an aesthetic that I wear, you know, like I'm more of a goth, more of a punk type guy, if anything. And, I don't know. Like, I kind of just thought about it and I was like, well, you know, she probably just like already wanted to throw a party and was like, oh, your birthday's that month. Fuck it. We'll just make it the party. Totally fine by me. I'm in love with this woman. She said a thing. I went, let's do it. You know, uh, didn't think about it very much. But then the next thing that happened is that you and I were talking about our project, our comedy project, The Woke Mob. Murray just joined the podcast. Everyone he's up on the table. Um, and we were like, yo, we should do one in L.A. Hey, holy shit. We're throwing this party. What if we did it at this indie sleaze thing? So all this stuff started to overlap, and we're like, okay, we're gonna do the woke mob. We're gonna talk about shit politically and stuff. Uh, it's gonna be an indie sleaze party. We started kind of bouncing ideas off each other and trying to write the jokes. And at first, I was like, what a weird idea. This doesn't make any sense. But the more we started talking about it, the more I realized that indie sleaze as an era is actually kind of like the perfect nexus for all of like what I do and what you do. And it's a really interesting thing to talk about 
because it's being rediscovered by Zoomers who yeah. like just <laughs> went through uh, the shit that is the precursor to this on the actual historical timeline, which is like new metal and stuff like that. Um, and there's like this weird revival thing. And so there's a lot of questions in the air of like, what is this? You know, what, what does it mean? And I think now that I've been thinking about it for a couple of days, my mind is brimming with takes. I, uh, I have a lot to say. So I'm, I'm obsessed with indie sleaze. I'm indie sleaze pilled now. I, it's, <laughs> but not in a positive way, really. I think it, I'm very critical of it. I think there's a lot to pick apart about what went wrong here and what it was a reflection of and stuff. Um, so I'm excited to talk about the hives and shit today. What about you? As am I. <clears throat> yeah, I, I mean, I think you said it pretty well, Jake. Uh, I, I At first I had mixed feelings about it when our woke mob show got combined with an indie sleaze party. Because I, <clears throat> you know, this is not an era that I am terribly nostalgic for. Uh, <laughs> I'm writing a book at least I think I am. I have a book proposal currently out on submission that's kind of like the dark side of indie sleaze. Yeah. Here's why this stuff was bad, actually, even though some of the music still bangs. I'm not going to pretend that it doesn't. That's the thing, right? That's what's so confusing <laughs> about stuff like this. Yeah. But you know what? I think uh, it's on some level, it's ripe ground for our, our satirical attentions. And I think... Um, you know, something that I'm angry about and uh, very nakedly, very, very, you know, uncomplicatedly so in the book um, could be come at from multiple angles, including comedy and satire. Because as we know, um, you know, sometimes the funniest shit comes out of stuff that's actually really dark. So um, I'm excited to be doing it now. I've got my American Apparel Disco Pant on. <laughs> nice. I got it. Uh, LA Apparel, which is, oh God, I'm canceled for this. I can't believe I oh, just stole wow. it myself. Oh, wow. Wow. You just did that to yourself. Yeah. It's, uh, it's Dolph Charney's new. Uh, <laughs> it's like Am Appy is dead. Long live Am Appy. It's basically American Apparel. It's, I thought we were doing BDS against American Apparel. Mm, God damn it. There's too many to keep track of. <laughs> I, uh, well, the reason I'm joking about that is because, like, okay, you know, the ethical consumption police, are, are they going to come after us? Like, you can't. You can't go through life without, like, sometimes buying shit that's, you know. You know, I'm a creature of habit, okay? <laughs> I did not bring enough warm clothes with me to L.A. because I'm an idiot and I thought it'd be warmer. And If you bought a pair of leggings from L.A. Apparel and you're going to use them to stand on stage and make fun of Dove Charney, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? Net good? We'll see. <laughs> we'll just have to be really good. Yeah. If we change enough people's minds it that cancels night. cancels out the yeah. $50 that I gave to him. And then maybe, maybe we'll go back and we'll steal a bunch of shit to even it out. That, that would work. That could work. All okay. right. I'm done. All right. <laughs> um, yeah. I kind of feel um, when I was thinking about all this stuff this week, another thing I thought about because of the conflict that you just said where you're like, well, some of the music still bangs, but you know, we, we need to be critical of what's going on here. It kind of reminded me of the way that I feel also about another era of music, which is emo because oh, like yeah. as a guy, you know, having lived through that and like during my adolescence, you know, when it, when it was new and when I was young, parts of it were very alluring that now I'm looking back at and going, Oh, that was like incel shit. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Like a lot of that was like, 
really misogynistic. It was really entitled, but just male centric, whiny angst. And, and a lot of those guys are fucking canceled for good reasons. And I'm sorry, like Deja and Tendu by brand new is still just a fucking perfect album. And you should listen to it on Spotify so they don't get any money, like stuff like that. You know, be ethical about it. But like, it's just, it's um, I guess what's interesting to me about this is when we engage in stuff like this. There's almost a tendency because in the modern world, like consuming culture to to especially to liberals, I think is so um so much of a statement, and it's more political than it should be. That there is a tendency to want to look back on eras like this and go, Oh, well, if we can prove that these were bad people and this meant something bad, then we need to like attack it. And I am going to be more of a dialectical person about this and go, no, 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 no. What, like what's interesting about eras of music that are past that we're now revisiting is that you can still make like good, um, music of that style. And the point I think to criticize it is to look back on it and go, Let's figure out what was wrong with it so we can make it better and make new stuff. And there's like new music that sounds like emo of the era that I think is good. Like I saw this band Reviver years ago that I really liked. And it was like they sounded kind of like they had the guitar stuff going on of like Thursday or some shit. Um, kind of pop punky stuff. Uh, but like the the band was like a trans woman and like a another woman and so you know there's so there wasn't this gender perspective and I thought okay this is cool right maybe there's a generation of people that grew up listening to to uh, emo took the music and then made it like the meaning different and maybe there's something so so synthesis not antithesis is what I'm getting at however I did hear at one point that that band also a landlord so uh, you know okay these are all inherent problems with artists we'll get into it yeah um, but like. Yeah, I mean, with with looking back at indie sleaze, you know, I I think that the first impulse you have to go, well, maybe fuck this whole thing, is uh, not quite seeing the entire picture. You know, yeah. um, it's good. It's good to critique. Yes, we can critique things and enjoy them. I'm sure there's some you know anti woke person out there who would argue that you know. The rapiness was what made it good. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like if the girl in Crystal Castles wasn't getting human trafficked by the guy in Crystal Castles, their music wouldn't have sounded as hard. But I, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, that person uh, is Gavin McGinnis, which we'll get to later. Or uh, I don't know, maybe someone in that world. Like that, that maybe is a point. But I think it's kind of largely like. I think most people probably come up from the other way around where they're almost like, oh, now I don't like that band because I know it's bad or something. Um, I don't know. There's a lot going on here. Um, ah, I was thinking about so many different things. So one of the things that we did to prepare for this was watch the documentary Meet Me in the Bathroom, which is uh, a documentary based on a book that admittedly up front, I think both of us have to say we have not read the book. I'm so indie sleaze pilled right now. I think I might, but I have not. So that'll be for the follow up to this if that ever happens. Yeah, sorry guys. <laughs> you can uh, direct your comments to uh, Murray the Cat at gmail.com and he will file them appropriately. Yeah, he takes all of our complaints and he eats them, and he gets bigger and bigger. And that's why he's so hefty because <laughs> we get lots of complaints, folks. Yeah, look look at what you did. <laughs> Um, but that's where we're coming from. Uh, I mean, that's just one of the things that kind of was part of this. Um, 
And I think it's a good jumping off point because it made me think about a lot of different things, especially because I just left New York. I lived in New York for 10 years and all of this stuff happened in like the Lower East Side and in Williamsburg, which are neighborhoods that when I moved to New York in 2014, 10 years ago, they were like dying. Like they were like everyone in Williamsburg was like Williamsburg sucks now. It's not as cool as it was five years ago, which is when all the indie sleaze stuff was happening. Five to ten years to 15 or whatever before that. And I kind of got... So when I was watching this documentary, I got like a... Um, just an echo of like what was going on right before I got there. And it makes a lot of sense because I find myself and yourself, ourselves to be like a product kind of of a different time. Uh but there's still all these kind of Gen X people hanging around who are from that time and our opinions on things are kind of reflective of what was going on, what life was like then, what our generations were experiencing. Um, and it made me, it made me miss New York a little bit until I realized that the New York, like in that documentary and in the, in the indie sleaze era is gone. And also the one of our era is rapidly <laughs> deteriorating too, you know? Yeah. Is this your leaving New York essay, Jake? Kind of. Yeah. It's uh, why, because of COVID that I'm thinking about indie sleaze and um, moving back in with my rich parents in the suburbs somewhere. <laughs> yeah. I'm just kidding. I have a Wikipedia page. It talks about what my dad does for a living. You can try and take me down, but you won't be able to do it, fuckers. That's right. <laughs> Come at me, bro. Don't come at me. I'm very vulnerable to those kinds of attacks. But um, so there's also this great piece by Dan Ozzy that you sent me, who's a great. He's like, well, I maybe my favorite music writer. I'm not a big music writer aficionado, but I've he's read good, yeah. books that he's written and stuff like that, and I really like him. Um, it's great, and he taught sort of. Uh, it sort of critiques like what Meet Me in the Bathroom, the book and the documentary are about and the story they tell in a way that I think kind of overlaps with where we're coming from as like Marxist and materialist thinkers, right? Because that documentary, it was, it was good. Like I enjoyed it and I enjoyed the story that it told, but the story that it told was fun because it was ultimately kind of a form of fiction, not in the traditional sense, but in the sense that like, the dreams of liberals are by omission a dream. They're just this weird story that doesn't really connect to anything. And it's just sort of about a bunch of artists getting to be artists. And when the entire time you're watching it, if you have this like fucking pedigree that we have of like trying to apply all this theory and stuff to it, like I was watching it. And the first thing that occurred to me is uh, the strokes are like kind of the central focus of all this. And uh, they're portrayed as, you know, the protagonists and kind of um, the, like if you're watching like a rockumentary, like their rise to stardom is an interesting story. But I was watching it and I was going, man, you know, I love the Strokes music, but I bet if I met these people in real life, I'd fucking hate them because it they I worked as a bartender in the Lower East Side. Oof, they yeah. immediately I cut their number immediately. I was like, these fucking five douchebags would come into your place. They'd stumble around. They'd be a mess. They'd come up and they would like not know how to interact with you because they're rich. And then the main guy, Julian Casablancas, you know, he'd be like mumbling and he wouldn't know how to order. And then you'd be like, 
okay, what do you want? And his friend, one of the other ones, would go like, oh, he's very uh, smart and sensitive. <laughs> and like Apollo, and I'd be like, shut the fuck up. What do you guys all want? This is like a story I told myself in my head when I watched this. Um, but that all, all that is to say, like, you know, these were these were rich kids. And they're the last kind of generation of musicians that were able to be, you know, these bohemians, like a scene of bohemians in a certain way. And something that Dan Ozzy points out in that article is that they're often referred to as indie musicians, but in reality, like the original indie music was populist, right? It, independent music was because you couldn't, you didn't have the access to major labels. Most of these were people that used those tools, but then were immediately backed up by, you know, their upbringing and major record labels and stuff like that. And were just sort of cosplaying as previous generations of music who were more authentic bohemians. Yeah. I mean, this is not to lionize New York in the seventies either. Uh, I think it's one of the most overhyped times and places ever. Uh, 60s and 70s, really. Um, yeah. But, but, you know, there was a certain emotional depth and nihilism to the music, uh, the punk rock of the 70s that was just impossible to reproduce in, you know, Giuliani's New York. <laughs> yeah. And the thing is, it, yeah. It, but Indie Sleaze was really interesting because it didn't reproduce it. It imitated it. And it paid homage to it. Which is fine, but that's for an entire like genre, like an entire like wave of art to just be throwback and homage is kind of odd because it's not that original. And the thing I couldn't stop thinking about when I was reading Dan Ozzy's piece uh, is Mark Fisher. Have you ever read Ghosts of My Life? No, but I feel like I've absorbed some of his ideas through the years. So go on. He's, he's like that. He's, he's out there. He's one of the big guys of the, of our world. Right. Well, I'll break it down the best I can. Uh, hard to do. He's a lot, but, um, we took, we did an episode on this podcast one time with Aaron about it. Um, Aaron loves him. Some Mark Fisher. He does. Yeah. It was his idea. He pitched it to us. That does not surprise me. I have read most of capitalist realism. So, Perhaps this is similar. It's all, I mean, he has like a whole, you know, thing, like a whole ethos or whatever. And it's certainly part of it. So uh, what's it called? Ghosts of My Life is about this concept called like lost futures, where he kind of talks about how like, you know, history happens on a timeline and there's like these like tragic what things of what could have happened, you know, with like, what if the Soviet Union hadn't collapsed or something like that? Uh, and then you sort of like mourn them in these interesting ways. And he talks about the generation of like your even ability to live a life where you experience lost futures as a, like a process that's kind of, he kind of pinpoints it as being like at the end of the, the end of history thing, uh, the nineties and the world we live in now, the post Soviet union collapse thing. Um, and he talks a lot about, music and how throughout the 20th century, like every 10 years, there was a brand new genre of music because the world was changing and it was changing in a way that was, you know, linear and there was like revolutions happening, like industrial revolution and stuff. And 
it hit a wall when we like simultaneously entered this like neoliberal postmodern haze where we agreed that as Francis Fukuyama told us the history was over and nothing new could happen. And we were just at the fucking end point and simultaneously like music, especially in England where he lived changed from being a bunch of people inventing new stuff every 10 years to, and this happens alongside like technology with like uh, computers and recording and everything. It became like this pastiche collage thing that you did. And like, Dance hall music was really big in uh, in the UK, and like, you know, everyone was doing like DJ stuff. And in order to do that, you you pay homage to previous genres while like making something kind of new by like mixing them up and stuff like that or whatever. But what he described in that book was like a wall. He's like culture hit a wall where it's like, oh shit, we can't make anything new now. All we can do is like download a bunch of sounds and rearrange them and stuff and go like, Oh look, I invented uh, electro swing or something weird like that. But it's like, okay, well swing was already a thing. And you know, uh, and I think that like the indie sleaze era kind of like, it kind of embodies this idea because like no one made anything new. Really? The main band was like a very deliberate throwback, you know? Yeah. At least not in the, in the world that we're talking about. Like I, I'm sure that there were innovations in hip hop and electronic music that um, I'm not qualified to talk about because I'm a rock chick, for better or for worse. Oh my God, he's trying to open the cabinet. Oh, he goes in there all the time. (laughs) (laughs) I just let him do it. Cool, cool. (laughs) Um, But yeah, that that makes a lot of sense because, yeah, I guess I hadn't really thought about why... Uh, all of that music was really just uh, kind of a postmodern pastiche or not even because that that implies like an assemblage. And in many cases, they, it was just straight up channeling yeah. the great greats of the past. Like, you know, I uh, one fun tidbit from one of those articles that I sent is that um, Julian Casablancas actually br- was brought in to overdub the Lou Reed character's vocals in some HBO show. <laughs> Yeah. That's so funny. Yeah, because he just had it down. To right. Tea. He's just doing Lou Reed. Yeah. But then, okay, so if the 90s were the end of history and, you know, nothing, there's nothing new in the world, then... Let's <laughs> just ignore him. Then uh, September 11th happened. Where he and... just cramered his way into the, into the room. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It's like the Kool-Aid man. Like, yeah. oh, yeah. I think he only goes in there so that he can come out again. I think make he, an he entrance. busted out. But you were saying about 9-11. Uh, yeah. Um, I mean, history very much started back up again in the early 2000s. Right. Um, but maybe we were just kind of, did we get stuck? Because you would think that that would make more new things happen. But instead, what we had was a continuation of this backward-looking rock scene, and it got very, uh, shall we say, apolitical. Yeah. To the degree that, because it was like, you know, it was kind of cool to be woke in the '90s. Like, uh, it was not an uncommon thing to try to make uh, punk or rock music that spoke to some social issues. You know, right? Even if they like artists didn't know what the fuck they were talking about, they would still do a thing with the intention being. Like, that's what I think about all the time for the '90s is. All the all the artists that got uh, 
sucked into free to bet. Yeah. Which was a CIA op. It's like declassified at this point, you know? Yeah. Um, And it was just people that like, they didn't know anything about Tibet, you know? Yeah, I know. But like, I think, you know, sort of young Gen Xers like Connor Oberst, a favorite of both of ours, Uh or Julian Casablancas, who we've just been discussing. They're like good progressives, you know? Like, Oh, Connor Oberst has good politics. They have pretty good left liberal politics. um, And... You know, I really admired when Connor did When the President Talks to God on, I think it was Letterman, one of those late night shows. Yeah. Uh, as a protest of the Iraq war. Oh, Desaparecidos fucking bangs. Yeah, they're fucking great. But um, Julian Casablancas kind of, I mean, it wasn't very sophisticated, but uh, New York City Cops was <laughs> a song about, the. he said, a reference to the killing of Amadou Diallo. By the NYPD, yeah. who was a, an immigrant, for, uh, a black man from Guinea, I believe. And, uh, you know, the lyrics were not that sophisticated. And most of the song was still about some hot girl doing some sexy <laughs> stuff. But, it, I mean, the, the chorus is New York City cops, they ain't that smart, which is fucking funny and cool. Like, yeah, hey, cat baby. But then, after 9-11 happened, they took that song off of the U.S. release of the album. Because, you know, you've got to support the troops, support our first responders. And it was a very, uh, it was a very jingoistic atmosphere. It was a very, um, you know, they, they wanted to, they wanted to be successful. I think he said like, oh, we just, you know, we had to read the room. So, and then, you know, any semblance of social commentary was completely removed, which like maybe, like I said, wasn't that deep to begin with, but I think it was a real shift, and you know, in that era, uh, we kept seeing these bands that sounded like bands of the past, and uh, whatever politics had carried over from the past uh, was completely stripped out, and all they had left was the aesthetics. And like, I remember, it wasn't cool to be political at all yeah. when I was in college. I'm old, guys. I'm fucking. 38. I know I look really good, but I'm so much older than you think I am. And uh, yeah, because like what what political statements most of us would have made would have been progressive. And we just were facing this fucking seemingly like we had the experience. I mean, I feel like I've talked about this before of protesting the Iraq war. Right. I did this when I was a senior in high school. And we did this by the millions. And guess what? It didn't do shit. So then after that, we're like, all right. The and it had such broad support, too, from the American public. It's crazy to think about now. Um, but something like 80% supported it going in. Yeah. So it, it really wasn't cool to be uh, making political statements at all whatsoever. There's this very huge backlash this post 9-11 conservatism so you know faced with that choice and faced with oh wow there's seemingly nothing we can do about this within the system that we have at least um you got two choices you gotta become a communist and figure out how to start that back up again at a time when it seemed like a completely dead project which you know give me a few years and i figured out yes that is what we need to do but for the time being it wasn't that it wasn't that crazy to think, oh, like, I'm just going to give up and do drugs and go to parties and, you know, have fun with my friends. Yeah. I mean, we were living in this era where, like, The Daily Show was on and you kind of 
Um, yes. You, I feel like you, you deflected from this like problem with consumption. Like you sort of, you know, people were very into NPR and stuff like that. And with like, um, you know, what the fucking quote everyone throws around, oh, bearing witness instead of doing anything, like what's his face Adolf Reed says and stuff. Um, all that stuff was sort of like congealing into this um, malaise. And the way I think, really, I think what happened is the way to resolve that problem that you just posed, because like the the idea of actually doing anything is going to ruin your life. It's insurmountable. It's impossible at this point, And yet your life is pretty good. I think the psychological way to deal with that, that everyone unknowingly sort of engaged in collectively is to sever like all of this from politics and start conceiving of politics as a separate thing that only happens in Congress. And, you know, kind of when you vote and stuff like that. And that's how you got like this artistic movement that was purely aesthetic and um, and yet constantly struggling to insist that it meant something when it like by its own rules kind of couldn't. So this documentary about all these bands in Brooklyn, you know, it doesn't really ever come to a statement and say anything. It just kind of, and if you talk to people from this era, they kind of talk like this too, where they're just like, man, we were just doing something, you know? (laughs) And it's like, you were just sort of romanticizing, trying to be a bohemian in the last pocket of the economy that you could fucking exist in. And I, I sing about that a lot because, um, I'm an artist, you know? And I uh, am on a fucking journey here. And I there was a time when I was younger, when Obama was president and stuff, before things really changed for me, which is when, you know, Occupy and Bernie and Trump and stuff started to happen. I started to go, okay, like, I, this is stupid. I need to, like, re-engage with reality. But there was a long time, I remember thinking that there needed to be a documentary made about me and my friends living in a house together and being stand-up comedians. And we all like pushed it so hard. And this was like, we thought it was going to be like our life's work. And I'm watching this and I'm going, yeah, I did that. I thought that too. I was in that same postmodern cloud that these people were in. And somehow being totally untethered to history because of all these various factors led to this, you know, this really interesting um, like era of of tr- that as a project, like trying to make everything super personal. But and here's where I here's where I think this is going to get really interesting, right? So that is happening as a reflection of like the underlying material base, right? Um, and because of that that base, I think that's also why that was the last era, right? After that, things got a little bit too stark, and it really became like. You know, very obvious that you can only really do art if you're rich, which is why we re-embraced pop, you know, um, and hip-hop with its sort of like, you know, entrepreneurial shit. Everyone's like, millennials came along and we're like, no, it's fine. I like that, that you know, these rappers are just like openly like, I am trying to do capitalism, right? Well, and, it's woke though because <laughs> they're they came from the projects. You know? Yeah, but it's right. It's fucking dumb. Like I, I hate that shit. I kind of have a Gen I'm X. I'm not a businessman. I'm a businessman. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but um, I think because because my the where I come into this is 
adjacent to all this, but in a different art form, which is connected to media in a different way. Which is, I moved to New York and I was going to sort of continue this thing of like, okay, I'm going to go try and be what the yeah yeahs were, but for comedy, right? And I started, you know, over the over the last ten years, things happened, and I started to understand that like. Some of this is metastasizing and as it decays, the, the leftovers of this world, and they're turning into fascism. And I couldn't really place exactly how it happened for a while. But here's what I think happened, right? I've also been reading about the Nazis a lot, which is just part of what I do all the time. Uh, <laughs> it's reading, a really fun life that you have. <laughs> I've been reading Devil's Chessboard. I keep bringing it up on the show. You know if you listen to the show. But like... Fascism, I think the thing that Americans don't really get about it is, and I said this quote a couple episodes ago, somebody corrected me on who said it. It's Carl, Carl Redak. I hope I'm saying that right. It's not Lenin, but it's a great quote, which is that fascism is the iron ring that holds together the rotting barrel of capitalism, right? Ooh, very evocative. It's good. What it means is that fascism is a cope, Right. It's a series of conclusions that people come to when the contradictions of capitalism become too heavy and they start to fall in, fold in on themselves. And I think that the, the era of indie sleeves was like one last dream that people could do this thing, much like Nazi Germany having this nationalistic dream that if they Ooh. just resolved certain contradictions, that this thing would flourish. But as we know, as Marxists, you can't force capitalism to get to this state where it starts to become plentiful and good for everyone. The line always goes down, right? The rate of profit always falls and all these things have to happen to resolve it. So what happened is in the media core that was like one of the headquarters for all this shit in Vice, right? You had this guy, Gavin McGinnis. And he started to do organically what I think fascism does when it grows organically, right? Everyone always thinks, oh, it's people in dark, smoky rooms. No, man, it's a fucking process, right? He started to, like, to, to almost as an artist himself, to, like, channel these anxieties and come up with a scapegoat, which is a component of fascism. You need, like, people to blame well, the thing on. The reason this all isn't working, the reason... The Strokes aren't making more albums and stuff and everything isn't like continuing to be like it was. Like it was awesome in, in you know, uh, 2000s Brooklyn. It's got to be because there's some stuff going on. And so he, you know, they would make this fucking thing in Vice that I read in high school all the time called Do's and Don'ts. Where they would go around and they would just make fun of hipsters, right? It, well... Most of the people who got don'ts were not, in fact, hipsters, or maybe they were trying to be hipsters, but sure, didn't quite hit the mark. All of this stuff is just elements of, I think, what I'm going to tell a story, right? And, and, and yeah, totally. Some of it is just, hey, what if we just make a habit out of just like fucking kind of brutalizing people, you know, just looking at people and just, ah, fuck that. And it was fun, right? Fascism is fucking alluring. I'm telling this story as someone who like escaped fascism, not as somebody who's. Big bad Antifa, yada, 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 right? Um, I am telling this as big bad Antifa. <laughs> well, I am now, but I'm like, how I got here is like, for sure, for like sure. kind of engaging in it. And right? you know what? I take that back because I used to write for Vice in those dangerous years. And I did some stuff that I am not proud of. Sure. So, there we go. We all have. 
And that's how we got here, you know? And and fucking thank God that it happened and we didn't just become, like, further embedded into it, you know? It's true. So, like, Gavin McGinnis is, like, around and he's really starting to do, like, the, he's starting to plant the seeds of what becomes, like, anti-wokeness, you know? Around the same time, you have, like, Portlandia. Everyone's everyone's obsessed with this word hipster. Every, everyone loves <laughs> dunking on a hipster while simultaneously kind of being one. It drove me insane. I'm so glad that's over. <laughs> it's crazy. It just went away. But I got well, replaced now, with woke. Now people are nostalgic for, for it, though. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> so they're going to go through all these steps all over again. It's going to be super fun. Right. Anyway. So there was also, like, there was a, a blog that was really popular called Look at This Fucking Hipster. There's another one called Stuff White People Like. <laughs> Forgot about that. <laughs> um, there was, there's this fuck it. So there's another thing that happened in the dark depths of the internet, right? There's this writer who writes about comedy and I like him, but like, I also will make fun of him from time to time. Cause he's, he's on a fucking mission from God to like destroy people that suck in comedy. His name's Seth Simons. But it's a little bit too personal sometimes because he's very personally angry because these people have attacked the shit out of him like they do. And uh, it's just a lot. <laughs> but I will say uh, he wrote something very important, which is a takedown of all of the alt-right stuff that is going on behind the scenes in stand-up comedy in New York City. And huh. it's good. And it's actually like they sued him. So the piece is still up. But when you read it, it says like, there's like an uh, editor's note that says, oh, uh, this isn't true. But it's like only or that like they, you know, this can't be proven or whatever. But it's because they sued him because they have fucking powerful lawyers and shit. It's, it's pretty good. I'll, I'll link it in the show notes. But he talked about how the stand, which is one of the current bastions of like alt-right comedy, right? It's where all my fucking people, <laughs> all my fans in the Legion of Skanks and all that shit operate. Um, it's where you're starting to see like it, these same groups of clubs. You're starting to see like Zionist shit. You're starting to see like gays against uh, groomers events and stuff like that. Alt right yeah. fucking lives in comedy clubs. It's stupid, right? Well, so he did some digging and figured out that the people that owned this club, uh, they didn't come from the same place that a lot of other comedy club owners came from. They didn't come from like the old world of comedy clubs, which is most most of these most of the people that own these clubs are just one of rich uh, one of Dennis Miller's ten brothers, you know. They're hangovers from the 80s. These were people that were like self-styled comedy fans, but the comedy that they were fans of was from fucking 4chan. And the part of it that it turned eventually into Nazi shit. And one of the things that they uh, that they were really into is called cringe compilations. So something that people that are really into like this alt-right shit like to do is compile. There's like lol cow is a term. They like follow a person like Chris Chan or something like that, and then just like you know try to provoke them into doing something cringe or whatever. And they make these like reels to like just watch all day, and like it's all the people that get like targeted, like the, the the fucking what's her name? I don't know. There's like a meme of a lady just like be protesting too hard, and she makes a weird face. She's targeted by these people, um, and so they had like these secret forums, and he like kind of exposed some of it, and. Uh, that was really interesting because to me, it's consistent with all of this scapegoat stuff, right? As the world of indie sleaze is falling apart, all of these people who are in the world of trying to profit off of like making culture and commenting on it are finding that the only thing that's profitable left is to just like 
just gin up this idea that that is popular because it helps everyone paper over the contradictions of capitalism that there's a a phenomenon that is causing all this stuff and it's like cringe liberals right and shortly after that we land in the world that we live in now where there's a word for it which is wokeness right um, I mean, before it was political correctness like right. in the 90s. Like, this has been a thing for a minute in different versions. Yeah, there, it's there, it's a thing that just reinvents itself every few years. It's like, Doc, if read fucking J. Myers' Dark Money, the, the Koch brothers, like, do this on purpose. They try to gin it up because it helps capitalism, right? Um, there was another show happening at the time. Or there was, a, there was a podcast, rather, that I was kind of into when I first moved to New York called Race Wars. Okay, so Race Wars was this podcast uh, hosted by Kurt Metzger and Sherrod Smalls and sometimes, um, like, Kurt's girlfriend at the time, Karen Margolis, would be on it. And Kurt's white, Sherrod Smalls is black, and they would do stuff like they would say the N-word a lot and stuff like that. It's like the joke, so it was called Race Wars. And that's, like, it's very consistent with, like, a lot of stuff Gavin McGinnis was talking about at the time because what he was doing with his little like culture war thing was he was starting to say stuff like he would accuse um, like kind of bougie like liberal types of treating like POC with actually too much kid gloves, you know, like, oh, you're so woke, you're racist kind of thing. Because if you're actually from the neighborhood and you're actually cool, like they like it when you, you know, are kind of anti-woke with them. You see this stuff. Gavin was totally from the hood. Right. Fucking he's from Canada. (laughs) Uh, But this stuff started to kind of later, like, like kind of reconstruct itself or reassert itself in like the dirtbag left thing where it's like, no, 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 actually be a shithead. And like liberals are lame and they're too woke. Right. So that like, that was kind of the ethos of race wars. And I was a fucking big fan of it. I listened to it a lot. I thought it was funny, but I also like wasn't in the cult of it, which is what eventually everyone that was doing comedy either had to buy in or not, because you couldn't just be like, oh, I disagree with you sometimes. They would just be like, no, fuck you, right? So, like, very popular person on the internet, Nick Mullen, his favorite comedian is Kurt Metzger. He said it all the time. And around this time, there were, like, there were like things that would happen in the comedy scene. Like, women would speak out about, like, sexual assault. Kurt Metzger would fucking scream at them and call them liars and say, like, you're trying to, you're just, you're just doing this for your career and all yada, yada, yada. And Nick was like, his thing was, if you fucking criticized Metzger, he would say, that's the best comedian in New York City. What are you doing? You're criticizing, you're, you're really going to to attack the best comedian in New York City? Which, like, you know, yeah, like, fuck, loser, grow a spine, right? A, you should. You should criticize other artists and stuff like that. And uh, B, like, what is the goal here? It's just to get famous? Like, that sucks, right? That's how you become one of these fucking, you know, these, these just, like... So you lose your entire soul, right? And like, yeah, I kind of watched these people because I listened to that show all the way up until Trump was elected, like kind of start to to crumble under their own contradictions. And like, you know, Gavin McGinnis was on that show a lot. They had a funny joke. They would call him steampunk Donald Trump, which is like <laughs> pretty funny. Like Accurate. these are funny people. <laughs> he looks like a version of Donald Trump if he was steampunk. Um, you know, that's, that's why it was so alluring. I hate it when people are like, oh, they're Nazis aren't funny. No, they're really funny. That's a fucking problem. Right. Um, (laughs) so this stuff was really interesting though, because it was becoming this like big 
like thing in comedy that everyone was obsessed with. Now it's all metastasized and it's like there's multiple sides and stuff. But back then it was like this new idea of like, oh man, like liberals are kind of annoying and you can transgress in all these ways. And it's like a free speech argument if you do instead of like just being a dumbass and uncontextualizing things or whatever. And um, what's really interesting about race wars is that it fell apart eventually because I think Kurt did some things and, uh, and then he moved out here. And I knew somebody who was working for him for a while as like an assistant. And they said that like you just it was like those cringe reels I was talking about. Is that their job was just to come up with shit for him to get mad at on the Internet uh. and they would feed it to him. And then he would just yell into a microphone in his garage. <laughs> um, and now guess where he is now? Works on the Jimmy Dore show. Oh, wow. <laughs> He's Jimmy Dore's, like, second banana, right? And uh. Karen Margolis is a huge fucking Zionist. And I don't know what the fuck happened to Sherrod, but he's, like, a dumbass, like, black Republican anyway. So who gives a fuck, right? Uh, um, <laughs> God. But, um, but all that stuff, you know, they were in the same room. They would have on, like, Ann Coulter and stuff. And they would have on fucking Gavin McGinnis. And it's weird because it's, like the end of uh you know a movie or something where you go where are, where are they now and they go off to do <laughs> and it, none of it is anything good but Gavin McGinnis went on to form the Proud Boys and stuff around this time I was in a movie with him what yeah I've, uh, i uh this director who i think was obsessed with vice or or was friends with those people um he filmed a movie called Long Nights, Short Mornings. It was on Netflix for like a hot second. It's like, I don't know. I never even watched it because my part got cut out. But it's about a couple, right? It's very personal, like Andy Slee's era. It's about falling in love and shit. At one point, they go to a comedy club. And the comedy, the scene in the comedy club is like, it was me, the host, and I would do a joke. And then I'd go, all right, ladies and gentlemen, Gavin McInnes. And I remember <laughs> oh, he specifically wow. was like, it's his... McInnes, not McGinnis. <laughs> he was like really mad about that if wow, you said McGinnis. So much for the melting pot. <laughs> so I say Gavin McGinnis now every time I say it because I know he doesn't like it. But um, and then he would do stand up, which was oh, it was fucking unbearable. Like it, it sucked, <laughs> and we had to watch it over and over and over and over again because it's a scene in a movie. So they were just fucking. <laughs> wow. That same director um did bring me back though. He had he. He asked me to try out for his next movie, which I don't think it ever got made, but it was going to be a story about the young versions of Gavin and Shane Smith and the other guy when they Aww. made Vice. And he asked me to try out to be young Shane Smith. Oh, yeah. You told me about this. <laughs> what? Yeah. And I didn't get it because I'm not really an actor. And I, didn't, I, was also, I don't know. I just was like, what is this? But I don't think it got made. But it is very funny. Um. Anyways, anyways, what I'm what I'm trying to 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 lay out here by telling this story is that there's kind of a direct line from like the Williamsburg vice scene that was centered around all this music all the way to, you know, I know this argument happens all the time. It, can you call anything that's happening now today? Fascism? Are there elements of it? I would say if there are, it's like the stuff that I'm describing, like the proud boys and stuff like that, which is what Gavin went on to make. And, uh, and the and the culture war movement that is at least at the very least a component of it or whatever, so that's why I'm obsessed with indie sleaze right now because I'm like, oh, this is like the cradle of all that shit climbed out of. Yep. But you have different experiences because you were a music writer, right? I was, yeah. Or music journalist, rather. Yeah, sure. Not a musician. Can you uh, can you tell me a little bit about 
that stuff and your experience with like vice and stuff like that? Sure. Well, um, first of all, I think what you say is very true. Um, a lot of this, uh, goofy culture war shit that's just seemed kind of goofy back then was the beginnings of something real bad that, you know, made it all the way to the white house, which is, you know, both horrifying and kind of funny on some level. Right. Um, <laughs> like, like the, uh, the piece I wrote in 2015 for the launch of broadly, which was vices women's site. So, uh, as some of you may know, I was, um, sort of blacklisted from vice for a while because I talked about my experience with Terry Richardson, the photographer, when I was 19, how he was, you know, he was creepy and he coerced me into doing some sexual stuff I didn't want to do. And eventually I wrote a piece about it and I was like, hey, maybe he shouldn't be doing that. Let's, uh, let's talk about it. And from there he got, um, it didn't happen right away, but eventually a lot more people talked about their experiences with him and he got pretty canceled, which I think is good. I don't think that guy should have power because his response to being called out wasn't, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't realize, you know? Um, I didn't realize I was hurting people. I won't do that anymore. No, he was like, fuck off. I'm going to do what I want. So he's like, no, I'm not, basically. So anyway, I was was canceled. Cancel culture, run him up, people. (laughs) I was canceled from Vice for that. And then, you know, some time went on and, you know, our side, you know, uh, the fucking anarcho-liberals, let's call us, you know, the antifas mm-hmm. and whatnot. We won the culture war to some degree, at least in, you know, the the bourgeois press and the media. Sure. So then uh, Vice decided, because, you know, they're a capitalist creature above all else. They're, they're like, all right, we got to get a little woker, guys. So they hired uh, the, a former editor of Jezebel to launch a women's site called Broadly. Uh, so when this happened... They needed to get some, you know, feminists in the mix, I guess. And um, she invited me to write a story for the launch of the site in, I want to say, this was 2015. This is right before the shit hit the fan. And I wrote a history of the fedora because I thought it would be funny to (laughs) treat something uh, very silly with, you know, a real uh, serious amount of research and journalism. I read it. It was very good. Why, thank you. It was funny, but also I learned a lot of stuff. Well, that's always the goal. I'm, uh, <laughs> I am a writer, first and foremost, so I really appreciate that, Jake. Um, but uh, yeah, looking back on it now, doing research for this show and whatnot, um, it was wild to see something which in 2015 was sort of the progenitor uh, just, it was just, it was silly, you know, I'm like, Oh, let's, uh, let's make fun of these losers online for their stupid hats and, uh, <laughs> misogyny. And then, you know, there should happen after that. But, uh, yeah, back it's, in- it's like funny, like in retrospect, because it seemed more benign mm-hmm. than it was. And now it's like, if you had a time machine and you could go back to 2015 and you see a fedora, it's like, burn it you know <laughs> maybe we can get, divert history here or something or you know i guess the angela nagel take would be be super nice to the guy in the fedora <laughs> otherwise he's gonna become a nazi and it'll be your fault yeah 
I'm sure that would work. Yeah. But anyway, um, you asked me about my experience as a music writer. Oh, boy. Um, so I think it's it's hard to <laughs> even explain to Zoomers, people younger than us, like how cool Vice used to be, <laughs> right? Because yeah. it's not cool anymore. It's like, oh, do you think Viacom is cool? Yeah. Do you think that, I don't know, the Sunglass Hut is cool? Like, no, <laughs> it, but it used to be, I promise. And anyone who says that they never thought it was cool is lying to you. I'm sorry. No, it felt edgy. Like, I don't make the rules. I don't make the cool rules. I just know them. And it was. Like, <laughs> Like, Gavin really created this idea of cool and sold it to all of us. And it, on some level, it was Gen X on millennial violence, right? Because <laughs> it was these, you know, slightly older, smarter, cynical Gen Xers sort of selling. Because, you know, by this point in time, they're like, oh, we don't care if we sell out or not. I know we pretended to care, but like, whatever. <laughs> but, but, you know, we're doing it in a cool way, not right. a corporate way. And so they're like foisting these things on these millennials, these poor, sad, lonely, frightened, downwardly mobile millennials who, you know, were like a bunch of white kids from the suburbs who grew up with no culture whatsoever. And we all just wanted to belong, you know, especially the ones of us who felt different, quote unquote, growing up. We just wanted to, we wanted a chance to be the popular kids, basically. And that's uh, what a lot of us started doing when we first came to New York and, you know, mea culpa a million times over. But, um, <laughs> I never thought about it that way. You're so right. It was like that culture was made by Gen Xers and sold to millennials. Yeah. And we were like, yum, yum. Thank you, daddy. May I have some more? Yeah, because we didn't like have our a point of view yet. No. And now things have been sorted out and everyone's either like really fucked up and anti-woke or they're like a communist or... I don't know, libs are doing some other shit. Yeah, we've sorted ourselves correctly. <laughs> but, you know, at the time, I was like, oh, this feels this feels appropriate for someone who, you know, felt like a weirdo all my life. And I really like Hunter S. Thompson. And I want to, you know, just like in the, in the movie we watched, I want to move to New York City. <laughs> I'm going to find my people. I'm going to do some art. I'm going to do a personal expression, um, but, you know, it's also going to be corrupted by the bad Gen X people who wish me ill and want to extract uh, <laughs> my value and other stuff from me, too, probably. So there was that going on. Where am I going with this? Yeah. So and at the time, someone who wanted to do that kind of writing, Vice was the number one place to be. Everybody knew it. Everybody wanted to write for Vice. Um, and you know, by the time I, when I was in college, I would say everyone was reading it cause you know, you could get it for free at record stores and stuff. Yeah. And then by the time I graduated from college, everyone was working there or wanted to work there. And you know, the labor practices, this being, <laughs> I, I would say vice really took advantage of the financial crisis of 2008 to, uh, to, 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 how do I say this? To accelerate what I might call these neoliberal shifts in the labor market, mm -hmm. right? This casualization of labor. So at the time, it was really a perfect storm of stuff. Because um, on the one hand, there were all these dumb millennials who wanted to be cool for the first time in their lives and who wanted to, you know, be a writer and really make it, make a name for yourself in, in the big city. And, you know, at the same time, these labor practices, which were, uh, 
to basically make us compete for a teeny tiny number of staff jobs, which paid about $30,000 a year or less. And uh, that was like the prize. If you worked hard enough for long enough and like, you know, shit on enough other people. Because, you know, there were no unions at this point either. There there wasn't even it. I mean, I'm not like, oh, my God, HR departments are the way the way forward. But like, you know, there was no one to complain to if you were getting sexually harassed. Yeah. Like, they didn't even have that. They didn't even pretend. <laughs> so there was that. And I mean, in, in, at Vice in the indie sleaze era, there was no HR. Like, wow. Don't say. <laughs> and it was, God. It, and like, it, it wasn't that long ago, but also it was in so many ways because they really had the gender politics of the Mad Men era. Yeah. Like, all the girls who worked there were hot and either white or Asian. They're just like hot, skinny white girls and Asian girls yeah. <laughs> working there and, you know, just constantly getting either harassed or just having like fully consensual relationships to the degree that such a thing is possible with your boss. with just these gross older <laughs> dudes. And that was, you know, that was just something you had to deal with if you wanted, if you were a girl who wanted to write about cool subcultural things at that time. Yeah. It's weird that like the culture of that era was so misogynist, but like simultaneously the guys all wanted to dress like these like foppish professors and shit and like look kind of like a dandy a lot of the time and like very twee. Like, I don't know. It reminds me of like the, the eras where, where people would wear like powdered wigs or something, but then they would also be like destroying the world and super evil. And it's like, what a weird combination of shit. Well, I would say there was definitely that, but there was also, if you recall, the trucker hats. Oh yeah. And that real, (laughs) that just wholesale appropriation of white trash culture, right? which I think it's very emblematic of the way guys like Gavin appropriated this aggrievement, this sense of aggrievement. Right, right, yeah. Because the people who were actually suffering from the opioid crisis or from, you know, globalization, the offshoring of these blue collar factory jobs, um, they were they were working class. They were working class. Um, I mean, much there's been much to made of the plight of the working class white man in this country, (laughs) and, uh, you know, their status did fall relative to other groups of people and also um, in absolute terms, and people like Gavin sort of took it upon themselves to be aggrieved as if they were them, Uh, which is not to say that there weren't also a lot of white working class reactionaries. Of course there were. Yeah, but But. it was becoming a, like a demagogue for them or whatever, like a weird little like, um, uh, Pied Piper for that shit while not even being one of those people was like a very profitable grift. You saw repeat itself over and over and over and over because, uh, I mean, like Trump is obviously the main example, but there's like a lot of those people that, that popped off in the, in the culture war thing. And I, especially at up because standup is all about like, it's a very individual career. You know, you're one, you're a one person business. It's the most American thing in the world in, in that sense. And, uh, people, and you're constantly making deals and stuff. And, um, the, the, the fucking fit, the petty bourgeois, temporarily embarrassed millionaire thing plays into that so well. People don't even realize that they're following a Gavin or a Trump or something like that who like isn't one of them because 
they don't consider themselves at heart to be poor. They consider themselves to be like the same as Gavin, but he's just a little bit ahead down the road or whatever yeah. successfully, you know? Yeah. And then in between those two groups of people, you have, you know, the guys who worked at Vice who, who were <laughs> largely these downwardly mobile white middle-class men who, you know, they uh, maybe in a different time would have graduated high school and walked right into one of those great old economy Steve factory jobs. I don't know, but you know, they all went to college because uh, that was what we were told to do, even though college was really, really expensive now. And a lot of them took on massive amounts of debt. So, you know, on the one hand, they have this, you know, they're living like five to an apartment, five to a one bedroom apartment in Williamsburg. Yeah. And, you know, they might look I, I mean, this is also why the hipster shit bothers me, right? Because it conceals, it's a cultural critique that conceals a class critique or that, that uh, substitutes for a class critique in a way that doesn't actually map onto anything material. Because yeah. a lot of these dudes were suffering on a material level and took it out on women and minorities and wanted to be like Gavin, who wrote all the racist and sexist jokes in the right. Do's and Don'ts. And, you know, these were my colleagues. These were the people whose respect I was supposed to somehow get and uh, never ever could because they were just huge misogynists. Yeah, you know, I mean, the thing about being in the the crunch, you know, of like a the, the downward swing of the economy like that is that in a time like that where we're just so far past the idea of there ever being like class consciousness on any level, when you... You, you're, there's nowhere near your reality is the conclusion that like this shit's happening for historical reasons. You're just going to fucking get a bellyache and lash out at everyone around you. And especially everyone who is beneath you in any way, especially if you can be convinced that what's going on is that you're losing footing because of an unfair, like uh, equalization or democratization of power. Uh, Especially if you can have that lubricated by the idea that it's just fucking cringe and it's all just like yeah. grating. And it's because when you, when something really makes you cringe, I mean, like it gets that's where like the biological arguments of fascism come in. It just feels unnatural. You're like, no, this shouldn't be fucking happening. Mm -hmm. And to have it played into that narrative that way, yeah, yeah that's how those people kind of went off the deep end. Oh, for sure. Um, but I also, I mean, okay. I want to give credit where credit is due as well and say that liberal hypocrisy was one ingredient within this. Oh, absolutely. Because, you know, a lot of what they were reacting to was, uh, oh, these are advancements being made by women and minorities. It's suddenly not okay to, like, say racist and sexist things in the workplace anymore. So we're going to make you sit through an HR uh, thing or whatever, but like that doesn't actually help the material position of women and minorities yeah. as we know. So it's like all of the backlash and none of the good that it could have been doing. No, I know. I mean, I think that's consistent with what I'm saying. Yeah. That's, that's certainly like a factor in it. And liberalism is just capitalism covering its own ass in that way. And like, uh, the the thing is, what's tragic about that is that the, there is a better way to do that. But, you know, liberalism, like, 
fucking especially the 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 one that we have now the of the that era and now it's like shrouds itself so much in this insistence and this performance that it's doing the that it's that it's actually fighting for the goals of something like communism that's actually you know cares about equality and all this stuff and it's complete bullshit and when people start to realize that it's bullshit i mean the thing, the, the fact of the matter, the, the thing about that that's really frustrating is that, you know, you start to realize if you understand, like, history and, and stuff like that, that, that that's – that it's lying. I guess – I don't know. I'm looking for a fancy word here or whatever. But that it's, it's bullshitting you. And that, that's actually power seeking to reify the status quo while telling you that it's doing the opposite. Because yeah. – it, you know, it, it it's going to give you like this kind of fancy short sighted story of we made it better for women. And then also we're like educating you or whatever. And if you're not making that person's life better in any way, then uh, you're going to. Yeah, you're going to develop like a, a pathologized reactionary type situation, you know? Yeah. And it's not a coincidence that the years that we are talking about at least the years that I was kind of on the scene as a as a journalist in the post-financial crisis era because I graduated college in 2007, folks. Ay, ay, ay. Uh, <laughs> these were the Obama years. Right. And I can't think of any better symbol of that kind of bullshit liberal identity politics than Obama. Yeah. I mean, he, and it, like, you know, something I remember from that time. Is that because we were in the fucking cloud I was talking about earlier, you know, me and my friends are just going around and we're just doing stand-up every night of the week, having a good time, partying. Like, every once in a while we'd stop somewhere because we'd go on tour and stuff like that. And you would just get a glimpse of the, the right wing at that time. Who were like they were really into like the birth certificate stuff? Oh yeah, they wasn't that one of Gavin's things. Too? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, <laughs> um, I mean, it's one of Trump's things. Like, isn't this all ancient history at this point? It's so weird to think about. What is time anymore? <laughs> we don't know. But like those people were uh, everything we're describing. They were like doing the math on this in like real quick. It's just, we were like, a lot of people were just fucking ignoring them because we were like, Oh, there's a black president. Like shut up. Like everything's fine now. Or yeah. Ignoring them, making fun of their hats, you know? Yeah. They weren't, uh, they weren't a factor. Yeah. Um, I don't know. And then also like, I don't know. I remember like, I don't know if this is related, but I just, I was thinking about it. Cause I was just thinking about that era of stand up. It's like, you had like the Gen X um, alt comedy boom, like the comedians of comedy. David Cross, Patton Oswalt, Sarah Silverman, uh, Maria Bamford. Um, Sam Cedar. Just kidding. <laughs> uh, Janine. Um, but like. Sam Cedar's friends. <laughs> Dave, uh, shouts out Sam Cedar. D- David Cross. He's really an example of this, right? He's from Atlanta. He's a Jewish guy, and like a lot of his material, he'd like do this fucking redneck voice, you oh, know? God. And he would like satirize like rednecks and like make fun of dumb hicks for being conservative and being wrong about stuff like that. 
and they were, right? Uh, and the Iraq war was going on, and it's a perfectly fine thing to caricature. But I don't I was doing a little bit of that, and then I kind of realized after a while that it was kind of short-sighted and stupid. And then when the anti-woke stuff come along, or like the precursor to that, like the the look at this fucking hipster and stuff, and then eventually Nick kind of was pioneering a lot of that anti-woke stuff in comedy. Like people would go, oh right, there's like this is fair. There's like another side to this and another story we need to tell. And <sighs> bashing liberals is fun. And it is correct, but you need to tell the whole story when you're telling stories like this, because if you tell only that story and leave other stuff out by omission, it kind of turns into a, a project where the goal, the, 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 the anti-liberal stuff, which a lot of it is anti-progress, you know, that stuff, instead of becoming, being a piece along the way to a, a, a project, it becomes the whole project is just sort of like just twisting the knife and obsessing over the lib stuff. And it gosh, created a lot of weird, like twisty contradictions and corners for people like doing media because like, I mean, then the, like the, the, the dirtbag left stuff sort of comes along at some point and it's like, suddenly we've like figured out, okay, we can bash Murray. Fuck off. Murray. <laughs> He's oh, trying he's to get on the, um, like there's this new wellspring of material for you to like make fun of liberals for reasons that are both good and not good, all wound up together in one thing. And you do it so much that you kind of then can't turn around and pander to them in any way. And so like a lot of the media that we have now that turned into post left stuff, I think it realized there aren't enough leftists to, to, to get Patreon subscriptions from and to pander to and to sell to. There's just not that many leftists in the world. It's by definition a pro, like a small project because it's a new project. It's against the status quo instead of for it. And your whole thing has been making fun of liberals. So eventually you kind of have to to kind of to, to pander to the right in these ways without overtly saying it out loud or be a Gavin McGinnis in one day go say it out loud like he really did yeah. one day just go all right let me just like explain Mask what off. all this is you know it's not a joke anymore yeah uh, it's real it's always been real uh yeah do you think he started a white power street gang because he was just out of other career paths to <laughs> embark on <laughs> kind of you know I don't know that's that's an element of it it's like all of the above yeah, right. Because he got forced out of Vice pretty much for being a true believer. Like the other guys at Vice were doing that stuff because it made them money. <laughs> yeah. Right? And when the culture changed, they changed too. Not because they're good. They're evil capitalists, obviously. But they, uh, yeah, they cared more. They have no principles. Gavin, weirdly, is the one who does have principles. They're just bad. Right. <laughs> he got forced out of vice for being, I guess, too principled a reactionary. And then he got forced out of his own website that he started after that, uh, Street Boners and TV Carnage. For I think it was a transphobic rant that uh, I think by this point in time people were like we can't can't be doing that anymore. So he got forced out of his own website, and that's when he was like, "Nope, I guess there's nothing left to do but uh, start a white power gang." And, uh, here we are. <laughs> I mean, I think that's how like his 
role in all of this forms along his career path, you know? And I think that's just like one component of the whole thing unfurling organically as capitalism just continues to create the conditions for all this stuff because it does not give us equality and and resources and stuff like that. So I don't know. On, I don't, you know, I like to be a materialist. I don't like to in, attribute things to like individual actors, but on some level that it happens, you know, that yeah. actors play parts in these things. Men make history, but they do not do it under the conditions of their choosing. Is that what you're, what you're saying? That's, you're getting at? that's goddamn right. Who said that? I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Some fucking hipster. Yeah. With a with a beard, perhaps. <laughs> the fucking beard. <laughs> Some fucking beard out. Yeah. Um, yeah, I also think it's funny that I mean we've been talking about the evolution of punk, right? And how it follows these different paths based on material conditions. Um, it is very proper and fitting that, you know, a magazine that was started by some drug addled punks. Uh, became it split off into the you know raving lunatic reactionaries and the annoying libs because those are the two destinies for aging punks. And you can't do both. <laughs> you really cannot. <laughs> you, I'm trying to think of an example, and there's not one. No, you have to pick one of those. They're in like direct conflict with each other. Yeah, I think um, I think that you're right. Uh. I think we've mapped out a pretty interesting trajectory here. And I think, I think that something interesting that you talked about along the way of this story that I've read about or read a little bit about in the stuff that you wrote is like, um, the, the wall that like DIY and like gen X ideas about how you can do capitalism in a cool way, like the wall that all that hit during this era, you know, can you like kind of explain that a little bit? I think it's interesting. Yeah, sure. So, um, yeah, I think a lot of the indie culture and DIY culture of the Obama era and, you know, it, there's sort of a delineation between the, the downtown cool sort of strokes era and the Brooklyn DIY era that came slightly later. Um, but a lot of what was going on there was, you know, punk aesthetics denuded of any political content that it might have once had. And, you know, part of this was the influence of Generation X and their emphasis on, you know, we're anti-corporate, but they don't have like an overarching critique of capitalism. Um, and part of it was, uh, you know, the era that we lived in, the post 9-11 apolitical character that I'm talking about. Part of it was, I don't know, these were just kind of sheltered kids from the suburbs who wanted to come to New York and make interesting things with their friends and find their people. And they didn't really think that much about the wider you know, socioeconomic context for it. But um, yeah, we really thought that we could go into these neighborhoods uh, and, you know, have cheap rent and make cool things and not really think about the rest of it. And uh, so, okay, I, I want to tell a story because this kind of came to a head and, and, and it felt like the whole world to us at the time, right? This was very important and special to the people who were doing it. People really devoted their lives to these venues, places like Death by Audio. You yeah. know? It wasn't just another business 
uh, on some level. Like the people running it, they lived there. It was their, their devotion was kind of monastic. Um, but on another level, it was just another small business, right? Like Todd P being the ultimate small businessman. <laughs> everyone was always trying to get to, you know, run for mayor or whatever. Um, so then when these venues closed at the hand of vice, mind you, which was, you know, some real frog and the scorpion shit. <laughs> uh, if ever I did hear about it, you know, like they cannibalized these, this underground for years to build their brand. Yeah. And then one day uh, they're like, oh, you know what? We need a new office building. Let's, I don't know, let's take uh, the block with the last three DIY venues in Williamsburg that people care about. Yeah, sure. I need, I, Shane needs a cheese cave. You know, let's put that in Death by Audio. So <laughs> when those venues closed to make way for Shane Smith's cheese cave, um, I was- Is that real? I mean, the cheese cave part? Yeah. Probably. Okay. <laughs> I wanted it to be. Then, yes, I I don't want to, it's like believing in Santa Claus, you know? <laughs> uh, it's real. Uh, but like, yeah, I really lost my shit. And a lot of us did. And it happened exactly the year, like at the exact same time that I turned 30 too. So it really triggered this fucking quarter life crisis yeah. for my my youth uh, the neighborhood that I loved, the scenes that I loved, you know, the people that I loved that I mostly saw at these shows. And, and you know, my career was very tied to it at the time as a music journalist. Um, I can relate to that because my 30th birthday was Trump's inauguration. Oh, boy. It was J20. <laughs> were you there did you catch charges no i was trying to get drunk and it was actually a really fun night to drink because everyone was like the world is ending oh wow that would be fun ah <laughs> uh, um i'm not gonna go down a rabbit hole of trying to remember where i was um that day oh i think i had food poisoning oh yeah i went to dc for for j20 and then i was just vomiting from the time <laughs> i got there to the time i left that's and funny I, you know it was a valid reaction i suppose not to be like fucking lib about it Blah, trump makes me sick. he makes me oh, have diarrhea <laughs> like yeah um, but anyway where is it going with this so yeah these venues closed and um especially death by audio was one that i really loved and i kind of lost my shit and they had these shows these closing shows and um you know i went to most of them and wrote about them for the new york observer to bring in another funny trump connection i worked for the new york observer uh yeah i've met jared kushner <laughs> i shook his hand and he has the handshake i feel like i've talked about this a million times before but his handshake is very weak it's like he's fucking like, dead fish it would make hank hill go like whoa <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it was very unpleasant like i'm not even gonna do it to you right now but you know what that's so about. funny he looks like he would shake <laughs> your hand like that jared. <laughs> <laughs> okay, dude. oh that's so fucking this funny guy. yeah so anyway um i got i was going to these shows and then there were these neighborhood kids, all right, from, shall we say, an earlier wave of immigration to the mm -hmm. neighborhood. They're just some, like, you know, little black and Latino kids on their bikes. They're probably, like, 13 or 14 years old. They're just some little kids. Sure. And they, they were catcalling me when I was walking into the venue, and I decided... Uh, in all my feminist wisdom, I'm going to do a little intervention here <laughs> and try to tell them that this is not an appropriate way to talk to a woman on the street. And then from there, you can guess where it went. Uh, they're like, this is our neighborhood. Like, yeah. fuck you. And I was like, huh. Okay. Yeah, okay. okay. <laughs> they don't like us is what I'm starting to get. And, uh, you know, 
on the one hand, I think it's stupid to blame the wave of hipsters that came in to Williamsburg in that era as the drive, the primary drivers of gentrification, right? right? These are processes that are far more powerful than some, you know, like broke millennial college graduate who like wants to make cool things with their friends. But, you know, they are uh, nonetheless a part of it, right? They're sort of, right. they're both, they're both accomplices and victims, in this process. Yeah. So. I don't like the, the way people would reduce it to gentrifiers as if it's like we you just moved out. Because it's like, if you don't want to blame individuals, how about the people selling the fucking property and like the realtors? And then eventually you get to capitalism itself. But like. Yeah, try explaining that to a 14 Right. <laughs> like, fair enough. Fair enough. But like, oh, you kids, do you even have a material analysis, bro? Like, let me let me drop some knowledge. I mean, I wish. I wish that it worked that way. But um, yeah, it, it kind of made me think. And mind you, I was a lot younger then than I am now. And because some of these things might seem obvious, I don't know. But I was like, hmm, why should anybody care that our thing is being taken away, our special thing, when we have been so, we, we've just cloistered ourselves off and, you know, it's hypothetically, it's for everyone, but it's a very self-selecting group of people that is a part of this scene that participates. Uh, like, it never occurred to any of us that we could or should, but even could fight this thing larger than ourselves of which we were unwillingly a part. Right? Yeah. Like it never occurred to us that we could like band together to fight the real estate developers. Or, and you know, it perhaps would have been a fool's errand in this uh, time, in this place. But you know, you could say that about anything that leftists <laughs> are trying to do ever. Right. Right. So like, I like, I kind of get it. The fighting's like, hard, yeah. Yeah, but like it never occurred to any of us in this scene that maybe, and and the way people talked about it too, even people like Todd P, uh, who was, you know, seen as a very wise person at the time. He was another Gen Xer who was doing a, doing a business, doing a small business, um, running a lot of these DIY venues. And um, he made his real money from being a practice-based slumlord, I'm pretty sure, and True, was yeah. also creepy to women but never got canceled over it <laughs> for some reason because i guess there were like a lot of worse guys out there who you know we could focus on first but um anyway yeah the way even i mean even uh, like including todd peak you know <laughs> uh, once again he's a gen xer he's a small capitalist who thinks that you know he's invented new labor relations because he's less corporate or whatever uh the way they talked about gentrification was like it's a force of nature you know, there's nothing that any of us can fucking do about it. Yeah. And I think these kids really internalized that. But, um, you know, in retrospect, that's obviously bullshit. Well, they both don't have, like, they're not reading marks and stuff because they're in ninth grade. But they're also <laughs> right. He's wrong. It's not, a, you can't just make the argument that it's a force in nature. It's bullshit. It's bullshit is the correct argument. Yeah. Um, okay. So as we kind of round out here. Uh, I want to circle back to something you just moved past, or you just mentioned rather, um, the sleaze, right? I'm curious how it all plays together for you because it's like, on the one hand, I love John Waters, I love Lenny Bruce, I love filth. I think filth itself has been, you know, um, like, like when, like, 
I'm reading this Cliff Nesteroff book right now about the history of like culture wars and stuff. And he, he talks a lot about how today people would have you believe that like comedians only get yelled at from the left. Uh, it's this modern idea that, oh, it's all woke schools and shit, which is insane because the entire history of comedy has been people like Lenny getting dragged off stage by like the forces of conservatism for talking about sex and stuff like that. Um, in a lot of ways, sex and vulgarity are things that are just by nature of being like a target of conservatism. They become part of the world, our world as leftists. Like we got to defend our right to, you know, have autonomy over our own bodies and not be sucked into this, you know, fucking big uh, Catholic church thing and, and conservatism and all the different like conservative Christian projects of like trying to shame us into being in the family unit and all this stuff. Um, it's cool, but it's also a fucking cesspool for, uh, you know, people to engage in it without really uh, understanding each other and having, uh, well-meaning like an intentional relations with each other that could be good, but when they're not, they're fucking sex crimes and they're assault and stuff like that. And there's. You know, it sounds like this era was a bad time, you know, for a lot of the women involved. The the, the person that I liked the most in Meet Me in the Bathroom was Karen O. Uh, she's fucking cool. I uh, I didn't realize she was a halfie like me. I just never thought about it. And that happens with people like us because we look ambiguous. Um, but she talked about it. As soon as she said that, I was like, oh, man, I really get where this person's coming from, you know, because it's like you never really have a home and stuff. Um, and she just her story seemed, you know, like something that. Yeah, it's it's within the realm of kind of, you know, HR liberal stuff. Some of it. Oh, you know, it's it's hard f for women to be an artist. In the, well, I don't know. There's critiques here where I'm like, OK, like cry me a river. You're a famous rock star. But, but on the other hand, like you, if you reduce it to just that, you're still being a misogynist. Like it it is it still does matter that this person by nature of their gender was being like, um, you know, like really threatened and was in a dangerous space because of, uh, you know, the, the, the outcomes of patriarchy and stuff. They're just let run wild. Yeah, for sure. What do you think? Like, how's that play into this story? Where did, are we in a better place now? Did it get worse? Um, did anyone reckon with any of this shit in any meaningful way? Is it, do we just have to wait for society to get better for things to get better? Does any of this have anything to do with music? Yeah, um, I mean, I'm glad you brought in Karen O because <clears throat> I think she's a good example of how people can be, uh, you know, cool and fine and a good person in this story. Um, and still, there is stuff beyond their control that's going on as well that the this, this filmmaker is deciding not to talk about. Um, but I think the way that the... Um, the way that the sexism and misogyny of the music press is, was directed at her, you know, of her being a girl in, the, in a band, uh, I think really is an example of how that film really shows the tip of the iceberg, right? Because yeah. if a rock star was getting treated like that, <laughs> what do you think it was like to be some anonymous young girl <laughs> who just graduated college and wanted to be a writer or, you know, the guy cleaning the floor at the venue. Totally. So, yeah, how you, the question was, how have things changed? How have they stayed the same? Um, and I'm glad that you brought up Karen O. But 
for multiple reasons, because I've just been talking about her. Definitely didn't just take a bathroom break and have to pick up the thread of what I was thinking about all over again. This is how the sausage gets made, folks. I'll fix um, it with podcast magic. But on some level, okay, this is going to... Oh, this is a dark note to end on. Um, <laughs> but I think, yeah, what you're saying about the politics of representation, like, it doesn't mean nothing, right? It is good that little Asian girls can see a rock star who looks like them and think, oh, maybe I could be a rock star too. Like, because the, the reason why that didn't exist before was because of, you know, racism, sexism, patriarchy, white supremacy. Material stuff. All that stuff, yes. Real things in the world. Uh, but, you know, on the other hand, uh, it is a bit of a Horatio Alger story. Yeah. When not coupled with, uh, you know, a wider class analysis, right? Because for every Karen O, there are a million thirsty young girls who have stars in their eyes and come to New York and think, oh, yeah, I'm going to be a rock star or in whatever field, or I'm going to be a writer. I'm going to be a rock star writer, right? And that can be used against us. Um, this is not fun to talk about, but... What music do you think was playing when Terry Richardson was taking pictures of me and whipping his dick out and acting like uh, this was really cool and this is really normal and he's going to make all my dreams come true? I, it wasn't Maps, was it? It was the fucking Yeah, Yeah, Yes. It was their first album, <laughs> and he played damn. it on repeat uh. the whole time. So Jesus that, Christ. Yeah, that's going to be burned in my brain for quite some time i think and that's you know. like i mean that's that's fucked up i'm sorry it's also like an incredible like way to end this sorry <laughs> no i mean that fucking says it all right there doesn't it yeah i, w I would say so and you know it, it kind of maps onto the obama thing that we've been talking about too right yeah because on the one hand you know i guess it's good that this country is no longer so racist that we haven't had a single black president, right? On the other hand, um, there are some very conservative uh, effects of having that to say, look, it's all fixed now. Racism right. is over. And, you know, uh, everything is fine. You have no right to complain about anything if you're a poor black person because Obama's in the White House. Like, we obviously know that's bullshit. Yeah, well, his, his fucking vice president... You know, shrouds him himself that stuff quite a bit. Or shrouds himself with that stuff quite a bit. It's his legacy, you know? And he's doing some pretty bad stuff right now. I don't know if you've heard Jamie Peck. Oh, I've heard. I am not <laughs> pleased. Uh, he tweeted today. He said he called you he called you the reader of the tweet big head he said what's up big head and then he started <laughs> it was fucking weird and then he was like put these signs on your lawn he's selling like campaign signs or whatever but it's of his head so he's calling himself big head and us big head at the same time it's uh. fucking insane it's bad but um i don't know man <laughs> <laughs> Sorry to end on such a downer. No, no, that's what we do around here. Yeah, I the, I, the life ends on a downer. <laughs> <laughs> Reality is a downer. It's true. But the yeah. end of this story wasn't going to be that everything's good now, you know. Yeah, no, that was um, <laughs> could have predicted that. <laughs> could have predicted that, but like, yeah, um, I don't know. 
So anyway, we're going to be playing some Crystal Castles (laughs) at the club, um, and we're going to dance to it and not think that hard about, um, you know, how that sausage got made. Yeah, that stuff's horrible. That story of that band is horrible. Look it up. up. It's like... It's real bad. So much. It's even worse than I thought it was (laughs) from, like, stuff I had heard. Like, jeez. But, you know, the good news is that... Um, well, we won't be paying them any royalties. No, no. None, none are going to go to that guy, that fucking guy. And, you know, Alice Glass is having a nice solo career now. And I am very happy for her. And, you know, I can... It's obviously not the same thing, but I can identify with the feeling of having work you made that you are proud of, um, despite being subjected to some really uh, horrendous interpersonal uh, conditions during that time period. So, Well, folks, come on out. (laughs) (laughs) If you live in Los Angeles, California or nearby, the 25th of this month, January 2024, we're having a party. It's called uh, Crime Wave, named after that Crystal Castle song. We're taking it away from them. (laughs) Reappropriating it for good. It's uh, it's gonna be like a little comedy show up top. We're gonna have some comics I like, some weirdos who are friends of mine performing, and me and Jamie will be doing our comedy show, The Woke Mob. We're gonna write some jokes about indie sleaze, I think, and then uh, yeah, some friends of ours are gonna spin records and DJ like music of the era, and it's you know it's it's a fucking uh, it's a renaissance fair of sorts. It's an era thing, and I guess thinking about all this and you know how bad a lot of the stuff was like. You go, what do you, how do you have a party with that sort of shit? And I guess my answer to that is like, recontextualize it, you know? There's, we're going to take parts of this that were cool and have fun with it. And we're going to, if, you know, we're going to cut out the bad shit. There's going to be sleaze, you know? We're going to overcome it in the Hegelian sense, people. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to do that. Come out and see it live. We're going to overcome it in Hegelian sense. Also, there will be tacos, I think. Hell yeah. <laughs> All right, Jamie, uh, where can people find you? Oh, geez. That's a loaded question these days. <laughs> where are you at right now? In transition, maybe? Uh, OnlyFans. <laughs> <laughs> well. <laughs> plug it. Plug it, man. I was getting very self-conscious just earlier today about the fact that the only content I've had to promote lately has been pornography. I mean... I mean, yeah, I, I could see how that would be conflicting. But um, currently, um, between podcasts and I guess, uh, you know, the Block Cop City stuff was kind of my life for the past <laughs> few months. And part of it was because I really believed in it and wanted to help out and saw an opening to do so. And part of it was because, you know, I was just I'm in a period where I just have to wait for people to say yes or no to my book proposal. And so far, they've just been saying no. And, you know, I'm kind of between podcasts right now trying to pick up the this is normal (laughs) this uh, is part of what we do i spend months at a time just working in between shit like that and then i gear it all up and i'm now i've got three podcasts and a fucking show and i'm gonna start doing stand-up again but then after in six months i'm gonna go back and fucking i'll start an only fans all right (laughs) (laughs) okay i'll come for you i'll take i'll just overtake you (laughs) (laughs) i appreciate it buddy i appreciate your 
<laughs> competitive support. No, I'm just saying, don't don't sweat it if you're. Uh, I know you I'm know, very hard on myself. And you're in the liminal phase I've between st- projects. I've still got this it's part of it. I really am struggling to outgrow this, you know, because I'm a child of the fucking PMC, and I was a little fucking hand raiser, and I won all the awards in school. So, uh, you know, that's uh, that's my <laughs> that's my struggle. That's my personal journey. Uh, but I am starting a new podcast with uh, a good friend of mine who. Can- this, this friendship was um, one of many fine things to blossom from the <laughs> Stop Cop City Defend the Atlanta Forest movement. So, uh, you know, I don't want to steal my own thunder, but we are going to be recording something tomorrow. So hopefully, knock on wood, it will be good. And then I will have something besides pornography to uh, <laughs> put my name on. But until then... You know, you can uh, DM me on OnlyFans, <laughs> ask me all your political questions. Um, that's just, you know, how I'm preaching the gospel right now. Cool. It is wild the degree to which um, people on there, like politics and sex are all mixed together. It's uh, it's an interesting, maybe I'll write a book about that someday. But Yeah, no, it's, we live in the blender world now. Yeah. And a history. It's all pastiche. OnlyFans.com slash Jamie Peck 666. Because <laughs> you know what? A girl's got to eat. OnlyFans.com slash Jamie Peck 666. It's a living. Plug that shit. I don't know. It's an honest. I'm going to say it. It's an honest living. It's work. I think we've established not, not that. not work. <laughs> yeah, if there's <laughs> anything that we can agree on over the, our, our combined oeuvre. Sex yep. is work. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I really appreciate that people are still like hitting me up and want to know when I'm going to do new political things that they can listen to. Cause you know, I've, I've been doing political things. This is just the, um, I mean the, the harebrained internet person who started that Reddit thread, like did Jamie Peck leave politics? She hasn't been doing any political media. Look, that's just because we exist in relation to people that do liberal media, which there's an entire infrastructure for the entire infrastructure is for, or fucking alt-right crazy fucking anti-woke media, which is like this rabid, like alt media thing that's sucking up an entire, you know, weird offshoot of people. And we just, our job's fucking harder. No, I know. We're always going to look like we're doing less because there's, you you can't just get on a stage and be like, these people are too fucking woke, right? And have a million dollars thrown at you. Oh, well, I saw that and I was like, are you fucking kidding me? I'm literally on a speaking tour right now helping organize people together to do a direct action against the police. But, um, you know, it's not (laughs) online, so I guess it doesn't count. Don't be so down with yourself. You're a very hard worker, Jamie. Thank you. I mean... You're killing it. I admire you very much, and we have to keep keep fighting the good fight. Buddy, thank you. I need that sometimes. All right, I guess this did end on a heartwarming note after all. (laughs) All right, well, say it with me. (laughs) It's finished. finished. Actually, it's not finished. Uh, one more thing. Colombo and one more thing. Uh, man, I feel like I need to put this in here because something happened in between recording this and now, which is... Um, I So I said at the top of this episode that I didn't know why my girlfriend 
threw me into Slee's party. And then the other day, she mentioned to me why she did. And I feel really stupid because it's, it's a really good reason. And I think it puts a button on this whole thing, which is that a while back when uh, we were... Well, we're on mushrooms. <laughs> we're like having a really good time doing the things you do on mushrooms, you know? One of them being just playing music and music videos and stuff. We were playing a bunch of like indie pop and indie sleaze and stuff like that. And I had this moment where I said, I felt like this swell in my heart about it, but it was like sad, kind of. Because I was talking about how, like, when you watch these people in these music videos and these, like, MGMT, you know, music festival era kind of videos, it's like, you get kind of jealous of them because you're like, the whole point of life should be to do this sort of shit. To just have fun with your friends and make art and, like revel in being alive like that which is what that music felt like and I was thinking about how when I was younger like I had an apartment at one point like 15 16 years ago that was like $500 a month to live in for like a, like my own place and then things changed and like, it got so much harder to live. Around the time that all that music was coming out, and I work, I just had to work so much. And so I kind of had this weird FOMO for like an entire era. And I felt like this longing for like this thing that I missed, you know? And I felt like I was watching from outside the glass as all these twee indie kids got to just live this live through this era where they just you know they were just having fun and just like celebrating life and i was talking about this and i was like man you know it's sad because it's there's a class barrier that's always been there but it got higher when that happened there's a class barrier to who gets to make art you know and it sucks because we have the resources to to live like that but only people of means get to live like that and if if we ever got there then the world would be a place where everyone got to be in the strokes and that was their life you know or in Brooklyn and just sort of like lived like a bohemian and that was the point of life and when I said that to her, she said, I'm going to throw you an indie sleaze party for your birthday. And that I think that's the nicest thing anyone has ever said to me and done for me. And it made me tear up a little bit. So I had to add that to this conversation because it was a mushroom thought, which they're often good for podcasts, but also because it's like, 
I remembered. <laughs> I remembered why this all came up to begin with. And it it works, you know? And so I think that's what this party is going to be, is like, um, that's kind of triumphant, you know? Like, just rebuilding something that you missed out on. You can do that, you know? Anyways, please come to my party if you're in L.A. Crime Wave. Tickets are in the show notes. All right, it's actually finished. Colombo over. <laughs>